Um, we talked last time about the kind of the nature of the colonies um, as we're continuing. We're going to talk about Jonathan Edwards this morning. Um, and Jonathan Edwards was, by all accounts, um, one of the most monumental figures in American life. Um, truth be told, uh, we don't know where he would have fallen um, if he had made it to the, um, to the revolution. Um, but he, his earliest death um, probably has diminished his importance. So we think very highly of Ben Franklin, um, but Jonathan Edwards, uh, especially during the time when they were alive, likely had more of an impact on American culture or colonial culture than Ben Franklin did during the same time. He did die uh, early. He was a uh, as we'll see, he was a fan of science, and so uh, there was inoculations that he could take, and, and he was a fairly frail man for a number of reasons of his own doing. Um, and uh, when he took that inoculation, it, it ended up killing him. Um, so he didn't have anything wrong with him, and he just thought this was the right way to go, but his, his immune system was run down. Um, I mean, we don't know that, but we're assuming that that was the case. So, um, But he is a monumental figure, probably the greatest... Um, most important and influential um, theologian and, um, and philosopher in American history, we might want to say. Now, philosophy, maybe that's not true, but theologian, philosopher, uh, certainly he has impacted quite a few people, um, and he, he lived a rather uh, kind of an amazing life. He's a, he's a difficult guy to kind of get a hold of. Um, he was born in 1703 um, to a very aristocratic family, so you have to remember that in America, or I'll just keep calling it America, but you understand that it's not quite America yet. Um, the British aristocracy, right, so the, the Britons had this really hierarchical way of organizing society from the king and queen on down. Um, and so the lords, and then the basically everything flowed from the top, and they protected you, and then you were subservient to them. Um, if you were an aristocratic family in Britain at the time, you did not move to America. Like, there was nothing for you here. You might have had a stake in a company or a colony, um, and you might have been making money from that, but you didn't travel to America. There was, it, there was nothing here for you. You certainly didn't live here. And so, naturally, what occurred in the colonies is there were families that kind of rose up that began to be of more importance than others. And those kind of took the places of lords and barons and things like that, uh, that you would get back in Britain. And Edwards was born into those kinds of families, both the Stoddard family. Um, Esther Stoddard was his mom, um, who was by all accounts an absolutely brilliant woman in almost every way. She uh, and her daughters helped teach Jonathan as he grew up. Um, and to Timothy Edwards, the Edwards family, um, was, was just as renowned in uh, the Massachusetts colony at the time. And so he was kind of picked out as somebody of grand importance from the very beginning. Um, a lot of uh, people in government, a lot of, um, especially at that time, ministers came from both families. And so um, being born as a male in that family gave you a lot of privileges. He was uh, one of 11 children, and he was the lone son of the 11. And so he had, uh, he was the fifth child who was born. He had four older sisters, um, and everyone who was born after him was also a, a girl. Um, so a very interesting um, 
from all accounts, almost everyone in the family was really bright. So he was taught by his sisters, um, led by his sisters and his mom, um, very, very capable people. Timothy was a capable man in his own right, but, um, but probably not quite as, as shining as, as the women of the family were. Um, he eventually goes to Yale at age 13, um, which was not outstanding at the time. I know that sounds like really young to go to school, and it is, um, but um, it wasn't like way ahead of the curve. It's not like when you hear of 13-year-olds enrolling at MIT or something like that today. Um, that's not quite what it was. He, he would have been a little bit below average, uh, or uh, I guess ahead of the curve is what we might want to say, for his age range, but it, it wouldn't have been astonishing. They wouldn't have been like, holy cow, you're you're 13 here at Yale. It would have been, oh, you're a 13-year-old. Okay, you're pretty bright. Um, the only qualifications to actually go to college at that time were entrance exams in Latin and in Greek, and so if you could pass those, you were good to go. Um, so he enrolled at Yale. Um, he does show that he is an incredibly apt thinker and um, from, from the very earliest parts, he, he is kind of standing out amongst his peers. Um, he loved the sciences. He, he thought that they were, um, he was kind of in, in, entranced by the Enlightenment, what was going on in Europe with David Hume, uh, with uh, other thinkers of the time, and then the, in the natural sciences. This is the time of Isaac Newton, and over, sitting over the Royal Academy of Science there in Britain, and, and he was entranced by natural um, sciences, like just watching nature. He wrote a number of, he wanted to write a number of papers and he had in his mind a number of things to write about. Um, he did end up writing and, and soliciting a paper about the, the nature of flying spiders in the New England area, um, which he thought were really interesting, which is, which is interesting to me because then he writes one of his most famous illustrations in Sinners of the Hands of an Angry God is God holding people like a spider over the flame. Um, one wonders if Jonathan had, had that image in mind. I don't, Jonathan was never the kind of guy who would just like torture spiders, so I don't know that he would do that, but nevertheless, this, his interest in spiders was there. Um, but he never actually got into science very much. It was clear that his family and even his own interests were going to steer him into theology. Um, he became a pastor. Uh, he pastored a small church in New York City. He would eventually leave New York City. Um, they offered him the position, but he left. He, he kind of wanted to go back, but he never actually made it back. Uh, eventually finding um, his way to um, Northampton and, um, and working in the church of his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. So Solomon Stoddard was um, probably the, the most, influ well, maybe most might be pushing it, but one of the most influential figures in the Massachusetts colony when it came to being a pastor. Um, and so basically this is, the, and again, you can, it sounds weird to us, it sounds like nepotism, but to get the associate pastor position at Grandpa's church meant basically that Jonathan was chosen over a number of other grandkids. So it was, it was definitely going to go to an Edwards slash Stoddard kid, um, and he was just the one who showed the most promise, and so he was the one who Solomon took on. Now, again, that seems like that doesn't work out very well, usually. Um, most of the kids were probably pretty gifted, and, and remember, he's not picking from a small pool, okay? So he's, he's got a lot of grandkids to choose from, and so uh, he, he chooses Jonathan, and it turns out really well. Solomon dies. Um, he had pastored that church for decades, uh, and, and 
kind of ruled over it very, very um, solidly. We're going to find out that Jonathan, because of, of what Solomon had put in place, Jonathan has a little bit of a, a rickety time there eventually, but he does well. He stays there from, um, I think, uh, 1729 to 1749. So he's there for a good long time. Eventually, he runs aground with the congregation, and um, they, they basically tell him that we don't need you anymore. Um, he then goes and works with the nearby Native American tribes, um, seeking to plant churches among them. Um, he marries Sarah Pierpont in 1727. She's 17 at the time, younger than him by far. Um, she was known for her exceptional piety. Um, most of those records come from Jonathan, but there's nothing that we would have that would exclude her from, from that. Um, and again, just an incredibly gifted family. Her father was the one who founded Yale. Um, so she's just the whole Edwards clan just filled with brilliant people. Um, as m many of you who have seen um, the musical Hamilton know, Aaron Burr is his grandson. Um, and so like the, the brilliance of the Edwards clan uh, just continues. Like all of his children, uh, many of them have grandchildren, great-grandchildren who are the presidents of universities. Many professors come from them. A vice president came from them. So there's a lot of very famous people that come from them. Um, eventually, Sarah is going to give birth to 11 children, and the most amazing part of that is that every single one of them made it to adulthood. Um, and at that time, that truly is an amazing feat, um, just God's kindness to the Edwards family. Um, although he does have to watch, I believe, one of his daughters, um, Jerusha, I think, passes before he dies. Um, during that time, um, we're going to find out that this is a major problem in Puritan theology. Um, Puritans are infant baptizers, so they, they stand on a long line of, of that tradition, but they're also pietists, and this is going to cause trouble for um, the Puritans in North America, especially, and it begins to cause theological difficulties because those two things don't work out quite as cleanly as they need to in order to make a church and society function together. But the pietists in, in Puritan life focused a lot on conversion. So you needed to have signs of conversion. So even as, as he approached his late teen years, he had been baptized into the church, but he was not a member of the church. So what would happen is you would be baptized when you were born into the church, but you were not a full member and allowed to take the Lord's Supper until you were brought into the church as a member. So you had to be a member of the church to do this. And to become a member of the church, you had to show very strong and clear evidences for your conversion. And these would change depending on who the pastor was, um, but nevertheless, you had to do these. Um, early on, especially even while he was at Yale, he struggled with the sovereignty of God. And he's um, and his, in his teens, something changes. He begins to find it an exceedingly sweet uh, doctrine, and he marks this as the time of his conversion. Um, he begins to see the entirety of the world as a mark of the sovereignty of God and its beauty. You'll find if you read any of Edward's theology, beauty takes up a beauty and excellence. These, these kind of twin ideas take up the vast majority of his theological thought. They're kind of the centerpieces of, by which he builds everything else. Um, if you um, read through uh, his writings, they're filled with um, incredibly philosophical things. Um, this is one of the things we're going to talk about when we, we kind of critique him. Um, 
at times he was too philosophical for his own good, um, and it didn't help his theology, which was um, philosophy in its heart that used scripture as material for that philosophy, and we'll talk more about that. Um, the thing that Edwards is known for the most is the Great Awakening. So when he's in Northampton, um, it's, it's about five, six years into his ministry. Um, the Puritan, uh, Puritan life there in the Massachusetts Bay Colony is um, fairly rigorous. So people always went to church, but there were a number of normal people who were just not in with the entirety of the program. And a lot of these folks were younger. And so there's a pretty good explanation for this. Like, people were, ha as, as we've noted, Jonathan comes from a family of 11. He then has 11 kids. Um, they're, they're trying to keep everybody in one town. But before you marry, you need to be able to marry and have your own place because people can't marry and live at the house of their parents because you, these houses were small. They can barely fit 13 people in there, if you have 11 kids, fitting another 11 people with grandkids in there is an impossibility. So what people are doing is before they, they marry, um, they've got to have a place to build land, but they're running out of land. And so people are going longer and longer into their 20s without marrying, and this is causing them to um, uh, frolic a little bit more than what the Puritans liked. Um, there were indications that people would go to the, the hours of church on Sunday morning, but by the time Sunday evening came along, there were frivolities, um, and, and who knows what that looks like in a Puritan land. Um, people, I, it could be as much as people just kind of having a good laugh at night. Um, Puritans were not teetotalers. They, they allowed drinking, um, and uh, this was a feature in New England, but there seemed to be enough people that this was very um, upsetting to Edwards and people who were very pious, um, especially on a Sunday night. And what's more is they had men and women kind of commingling with one another, not just in social settings, but in private settings as well, sometimes living together. Um, and eventually this became enough for Jonathan to start calling it out, and he began to call out young people on this. And as he did so, um, there seemed to be some turning of them, but it didn't happen until one young lady, I don't know what her name is, um, but one young lady who repented and converted, who was notorious for her, her livelihood at the time, um, she began then to tell people of the goodness of Christ, and then it just kind of like over flooded everything. And so from 1733 to 1734, um, this little town of 1100 added some 300 people into membership because they were um, quite clearly showing evidences in Jonathan's recollection of the grace of God working upon them. Um, so this, this thing takes off. And one of the things that really makes it well known is that Jonathan does this weird thing while all of this is going on. So part of the problem is the working of the Spirit in people was kind of like ecstatic. So people were like uncontrollably weeping during these services. They were um, falling down. They, they were yelling out. And, and a lot of people, and you can imagine in, in the Puritan life, 
heard of these excesses and were like, that's not, I don't know what you, I don't know what you're doing up there, Jonathan, but that's not okay. And so what Jonathan started to do was to treat it like spiders. He was, he was writing down what he saw, when he saw, how he saw it, and um, published these things um, as a sign of what God was doing amongst the people, but also then as an explanation. And so um, he started to work on, well, what do we take as the expression of the work of the Spirit? And he said, certainly these expressions are, are wonderful and grand, but what we really see, why, the reason why we know this is a work of God is not because people are weeping and, and yelling and fainting, but it is because of the change of their lives. And so he was, he was really clear thinking and clear headed in all of this um, because he just kept pointing back to the change of people's lives is what he was pointing toward. And that's really the cornerstone of this particular awakening was that these people had changed lives and it spread. It spread to Connecticut. The reports of it spread everywhere. Um, it, it was quite important. This was tied into somebody like Whitfield. Uh, Whitfield was very animated in the way that he preached and got people to respond, especially when he said words like Mesopotamia. Um, but for others, uh, they thought that this was how Edwards was as well. Um, and so if you, you know anything about Edwards, you know sinners in the hands of an angry God. This picture of like fire and brimstone preaching was anything but. Uh, he had very little emotion when he read. He almost read directly off of um, his, his notes. Um, if he did look up, he looked almost straight up. He didn't look at people when he preached. Um, and when he preached sinners, it's a sermon, uh, if you've ever read it, which lays out in, in just very obvious terms, using brilliant illustrations, more, more illustrations than he normally uses, um, the, the problem for sinners before God. And it was said <clears throat> when he preached it the first time that he was distraught because there was so much uproar after preaching how sinners um, are, are doomed to destruction before God. There was such an uproar amongst the congregation that he couldn't even get to the good part. Like they had to cancel service because people were just screaming and how he didn't even get to the point of God's mercy. Um, so this is the kind of thing that, that's showing up in his ministry. Um, this was squashed when um, a rash of depression slash suicide uh, attached to the Great Awakening happened. And so Joseph Hawley, who was Jonathan's uncle, um, had not been admitted into the church. He did not have the signs of conversion. He was looking around him, and he was noticing how— he was, he was a, a man who was prone to depression anyway. He was seeing the signs of God working in other people's lives, and he thought that he was doomed— because that sign was not in his life. And so he took his own life um, very grisly, in a very grisly manner, took his own life. And what ended up happening was there were numerous people who reported, even if they didn't give in to suicide, felt a strong leading and calling toward killing themselves. Um, there were about five people who did kill themselves. Um, and it was based off of this, this idea of... of the spirit hasn't worked in me. I don't, I don't have the spirit. Uh, I don't have the signs of conversion. I'm not truly in with God. And so because of that, they, they thought that there was no hope for them and they, they took their lives. Um, this ended up, uh, Jonathan quite clearly saw this as the work of Satan. He thought that God was sovereign over all things and he wasn't sure why this was happening, but he was certain that this was both due to, like in Holly's case, 
the normal depression that he would go under, but then it was also due to the work of Satan in the lives of people. Um, by the time um, Edwards dies, he has written an incredibly, incredibly detailed accounts of theology. Um, both the freedom of the will and religious affections are two monumental works. Freedom of the will is just pure philosophy. Like, there's, there's, it's meant to be tied into something like the bondage of the will, according to Luther. Luther is much more scriptural in what he does than what Edwards is doing. Um, but then his recounting of the um, religious affections is a helpful book to work through how the spirit might work in people and things like that. Um, things, things were weird, though. There is a report. He writes the report. Um, and, and again, when you think of Puritans, this is not the kind of thing you think of. He writes reports, uh, a report, a very detailed report of his wife levitating and floating across the room. Okay? So again, he, he, the, these sorts of things happened uh, to him and to his wife, apparently. Um, he reports it like it's just a thing, uh, even though I think he's got fairly detailed notes on it. Um, so I don't know what you do with that. Uh, they, they, clearly, he was, not, he was not one who said the Spirit could never work like this. Um, he would have kept stuff like that quiet, and he saw it in front of him. So um, there, there are weird things like that in there. Um, but any, anyways, uh, there are good things about him, and there are bad things about Edwards. Um, some of the good things, uh, as we kind of sum up his life. Um, from the beginning, there was a sincere and devote striving for holiness in his life. No one can, can doubt that. He, he thought and wanted to be the holiest person that he could be, and he strove for those things. And he, he didn't do it because he thought that God wasn't going to help him, um, but he, he thought it was a way to honor God, and um, he just he thought it was the right thing to do. Um, I, I don't really know how else to put it. There was a devotion that he gave to God. Um, and part of this makes him look very, so he's got like 70 resolutions that he writes down. You can find those resolutions pretty easily. Um, but he was almost to the point of, if you remember when we talked in the third and the fourth and the fifth centuries about monks and their ascetic behaviors, he was really close to that. He, he would never drink. Um, he was really he, he lived on the least amount of food that he could possibly live on. Um, there were friends who would see him, and given the, the stress of his work at Northampton, the hours that he worked, um, people thought that he just looked horrible. And part of the reason was the guy just didn't nourish his body. Um, as a way of, of sort of a mark of holiness, keeping himself as far from gluttony as possible. And I think in his head, the idea is, this will help me truly rest in Christ, right? Because fasting is meant to do that. I don't need food. I'm going to limit my food, and I'm going to rest in Christ. But the truth is, um, this probably helped and aided his early demise, um, that he, he was just in bad health because he just didn't take care of himself. Um, but that sort of stern living was part and parcel of his life because he really did want to be holy, um, he also was incredibly objective and fair-minded. Um, and again, you see that with these sort of ecstatic behaviors in the church. He doesn't just immediately rule them out and say, 
this can't be a work of the Spirit, nor does he simply say, well, I, I am reading the Word of God. This is happening. This must be a work of the Spirit. Rather, he is taking time to see what's happening, to think through it in terms of Scripture, and, and to try and work out what, what's actually going on and give a, a legitimate account of how the Bible talks about these things and what he is seeing in front of him. Um, he, he is very helpful in this. So you have people like Whitfield. Whitfield, uh, for all of his good, just can't help but stir up trouble. He will go to these places in Massachusetts or anywhere, and he will meet with the ministers for, for just a small amount of time, and then he will tell people, your minister is not a converted man. Like, he will just tell them, like, your minister does, has, knows nothing of grace. And um, Edwards just came back and said, you, you, can't, you can't judge people like that. Like, you, you don't know the inner situation of what's going on in a person. Even if they don't look like you want them to look or talk like you want them to talk, that is not a judgment that you should be making, especially when you, you've just rashly met somebody. Like, you, you just can't do that. And so he was always very fair and, and sort of judicious in how he treated people. Um, and he follows through on what he, he states. So um, one of the problems with Edwards um, and I think that it has a lot to do with his understanding of hierarchy and how that works in life. He's very hierarchical. Um, is that he does own slaves, um, and he has, this is not, and, and the arguments like there are men of their times, it's just the weakest, silliest argument. His son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., wrote all the time about abolition. He was an abolitionist from the, from the earliest moments of, of his, his writings. Um, he wrote about it all the time. You know, we, we've already heard about John Wesley. John Wesley was an abolitionist. Th these, there were people around who were making these arguments already. Edwards rarely wrote about it. Um, and so it's not, it's not a good thing. It's, it's a very bad thing. It's an oversight in his life, and one wonders how it could get to that point. My guess is that it was within the hierarchy of how he saw society working, and so it was okay in his mind. But to his credit, and I, I mean this in the, I don't mean to brush that aside, but to his credit, he was willing, when showing signs of true conversion, to allow African Americans to be absolutely full members of his church to take the Lord's Supper. So he would deny that to his uncle, but he would allow African Americans to do it so long as they showed the signs of conversion, right? Whatever those signs might be, according to Jonathan Edwards, and he had a, he literally had a test for people. Like he would he would ask them and, and ask them questions and sort of go through and, and make sure that they had the right. If if African Americans did that, he had African Americans as members of his church. Now you're going to find as we turn toward the South, that during slavery and the worst parts of slavery, that was a huge deal. Because again, the disconnect between they're equal brothers in Christ and we can own you, that doesn't work very well. And Jonathan was able to get away from that because of this sort of hierarchy that he had. But nevertheless, this was why people in the South started saying, they can't be members of our church. You go start your own churches, um, which leads to where we are today. But nevertheless, uh, he had a number of good things. There were some very odd things as well. Um, so we talked about slavery. Um, he had Trinitarian problems, which sounds really bad. He was Orthodox, um, but he's kind of Orthodox against himself. So he, he has this, again, what I think the major problem with Edwards is that he's too philosophical for his own good, okay? So 
he wants to explain the Trinity, and he does so by talking about an analogy of mind, understanding, and love. And so I'll read you kind of a succinct way that Edwards talks about how, how the Trinity works. And this is, this is Edwards' own words. The Father is the deity subsisting in the prime, unoriginated and most absolute manner, or the deity in its direct existence. So when you think of deity, boom, God the Father. Nothing, nothing really un, unoriginal about, or nothing original about that. That is perfectly normal. The Son is the deity generated by God's understanding or having an idea of himself and subsisting in that idea. So as the Father thinks of himself, that produces the Son, okay? Um, it, he doesn't use the word produce, which is important. That generates the Son. So the Father, considering himself, generates an idea of himself. That idea is nothing less than the Son, the Holy Ghost is the deity subsisting in act or the divine essence flowing out and breathed forth in God's infinite love and to delight in himself. Okay? And I believe the whole divine essence does truly and distinctly subsist both in the divine idea and divine love, and so that each one of them therefore are properly distinct persons. In other words, the Son is the Son as an idea, and the Spirit is the Spirit of love. But... An idea is not a person. And you can hear Edwards at the end being like, but even though I'm saying this, by the way, I really do think that they're persons because he knows love isn't a person, right? So we can say God is love, but that doesn't explain the whole of who God is, right? And so he runs into this real problem where like love isn't a person and an idea is not a person. And he's got to basically come in and say, but, but yeah, no, seriously, I'm orthodox. So he's covering himself by saying that he's orthodox while explaining the Trinity in very odd, very odd ways. Um, this is a problem because this is much more philosophical than anything that the church fathers did. So Augustine's quite clearly capable of using these sort of analogies for the Trinity, but when it comes to things like the generation of the Son— he really just stays close to what the Bible says. He just says the Son's generated. The Son is the Son of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. Um, that's what we can say. And that's what we're going to say. Like, Augustine stays pretty close to it. He uses analogies at times, but he's always very clear on their limited nature. It seems like this particular analogy is less of an analogy and more of, like, just the way that, uh, that Edwards thinks of the Trinity. It's bad. Um, secondly, uh, he has issues with justification. And, right? So once I say those two things, you're like, that's not great. Um, his issue with justification was really odd. Um, and when you hear what he talks about when he talks about faith, it's just it's a strange thing. So early reformers were very, very strong in their desire to split off faith from everything else. So faith justifies you. But one of the things that they really wanted to do against Catholic belief was to separate out faith and, and the work of justification that comes from faith from love and the work of sanctification that happens afterward. Okay, so again, the main difference between Roman Catholic thought and Reformed thought is the fact that faith justifies you and you are sanctified as a result of it, 
whereas faith and or justification and sanctification are brought together in Roman Catholic thought so that you are justified when you're sanctified. What you read in Edwards is almost a, you would almost be able to pick up whole statements of his concerning faith and justification and plop them down in a Roman Catholic catechism and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, we can buy that, Um, which is really strange. So the People like Francis Turretin, who we didn't talk about, work really hard to separate these out. And here's sort of like Edwards talking about this. So this is Edwards' words again. Uh, "'Tis the same agreeing or consenting disposition that according to diverse objects, different states of manner or exertion, is called by different names. So just ignore this, but, but he's talking about faith. So he says, "'When faith tis exerted toward a Savior, it's called faith or trust.'" When toward unseen good things promised, faith and also hope. When towards a gospel or good news, faith. When towards persons excellent, love. When towards commands, obedience. When towards God with respect to changes, tis properly called resignation. When with respect to calamities, submission. So he's basically saying there's one disposition. Sometimes we call it faith. Sometimes we call it hope. Sometimes we call it love. Sometimes we call it submission, but it's all of the same thing. Well, that, that is a problem, like, because that, that basically is, is destroying what the Reformation has spoken of in terms of faith for a long time. Um, and he, he makes obedience, like Roman Catholics, almost a part of justification. The scripture of um, the scriptural doctrine of justification by faith alone does in no wise diminish either the necessity, necessity or benefit of a sincere evangelical universal obedience in that man's salvation is not only indissolubly connected with it and damnation the want of it in those that have the opportunity for it, but that it depends upon it in many respects. So he is saying your justification depends upon your obedience. Now, he is going to back off all of that solely by saying it's in Christ alone. But again, that, that's like Roman Catholic stuff right there. Um, and, and the real, we can understand this. We can wrap this into a, a, a good doctrine of justification because we know that justification has to lead to a changed life. And that's basically what Edwards is pushing for, right? It comes down to this idea of piety and conversion that he wants to see. The problem is, of course, what happens to babies when they're born in, right? So babies of members of the church are automatically baptized and brought into the church. The Puritans need to have that because the entire society is to be brought under the authority of the church. The problem is, without signs of conversion, when those people grow up without signs of conversion and have children, what do we do with their children? Well, some say we baptize them. Almost everyone in Puritan lands said we baptize them. You've got to because it's hard to have a society without people involved in the church. You've got to baptize them into the church. Otherwise, you can't organize society. Okay. So this was a question. What do we do when it comes to these other people who aren't getting into the Lord's Supper? Or, you know, they don't want their kids to be baptized because they want to be separated from the church. But the grandparents want the kids to be baptized, right? And on and on and on it goes. So what, basically what they did was they had this something called the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant said, if the grandparents want the kids to be baptized, they can be baptized, but you have to have conversion in order to become a full member. Now Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, thought that 
the Lord's Supper might be a converting sort of experience for people. And so he allowed, un, he allowed baptized people who were unconverted and who weren't members of the church, or he, he allowed them to become members of the church outside of being converted, and thus allowed them to take the Lord's Supper thinking that they would be converted. Okay? So the halfway covenant was the covenant where they were baptized in, but they weren't allowed to take of the Lord's Supper. Jonathan agreed with that. Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, didn't. Um, and you're, you're really doing a give or take. On one hand, you have somebody who, and Solomon Stoddard, is truly, truly wanting these people to be converted and sees that in giving them the Lord's Supper, he is allowing them to, to understand something of the gospel. He thinks that it is a, a means of grace, and so he wants them to take it so that they might be converted. Um, on the other hand, you have people who are quite clearly concerned that if we give up the ghost on this, what's going to happen is we're going to have a society of unsaved people, and how do we rule over them? And this is the Puritan dilemma. This is the problem that you get into. One of the reasons why Jonathan Edwards has the theory of justification that he does is because he had, to, in order to tell that somebody was justified, he had to see really strong evidences in their lives, right? It wasn't just confess and show a sign of heart and then deal with, with issues with church discipline. That wasn't enough for him. He had to have these very clear signs of people coming to know the Lord. Um, this is a huge issue with Puritan churches, and it's not a good one. Um, the, the overemphasizing the change in people's lives is a problem that especially people who were from the Church of England noted and kind of took him to task for. So this is John Newton. You all know John Newton, slave ship captain, converted, very famous, wrote a lot of things, including Amazing Grace. Here's what Newton says about the way in which Edwards and Stoddard and other ran their churches. Uh, Most of the New England divines I have met with have, in my judgment, one common fault— they abound with distinctions and refinements and experimental matters um, which are suited to cast down those whom the Lord would have comforted. And in their long account of what they call a preparatory work, they include and thereby depreciate some real and abiding effects of true grace. They require such an absolute submission to the righteousness and sovereignty of God before they will allow a person to be a believer as I apprehend, is seldom the attainment of a babe in Christ. In other words, he's saying there are babies in Christ here who need the protection of the church and the help of the church. And instead of helping them, Edwards and other Puritans would hold them at arm's length and say, until you're a little bit stronger, right? But what Newton is saying is these are the very people who need the help of the church. He goes on to say, we say such a building is a house not only when it is tiled, painted, and furnished, but while the walls are yet unfinished, while it is encumbered with rubbish and surrounded with scaffolds, which, though not part of the edifice, but are designed in time to be removed, are helpful for carrying it on. We speak of a field of wheat, not only in harvest, but in spring, and say, it is day when the light is gradually increasing, though the sun be not risen. I doubt much if those desires and workings in an awakened mind, which are mixed with great legality and mistakes, are the real effects of the Holy Spirit, no less than the fruits of joy and peace in believing which he produces in due time, and therefore ought not hastily to be cast away in the lump as mere strivings of corrupt nature. In other words, like, 
if they persist in the law because they don't know any better, if they are, if they're, if they are, if they look like, new, you know, you've seen newborn deer, right? They get up and they wobble around. Like if they're wobbling around, man, they're wobbling around because they were just born, right? Give this is what the church is there for. So he's he's saying, this this is a problem in New England. This is a real problem in his. You know, he's got a lot of problems in his theology, but the reason why the theology matters is because it has practical effects like this, that people who ought to have been taken care of, comforted, were not being done so until they were able to produce in their lives enough evidence for the church to say, yeah, all right. Um, now, it's not that, that that's wrong. We, we need something like that, right? We as a church do the same thing. Um, but there has to be a balance, and they were skewed heavily on one side. So there are churches who will be like, does anybody want to be baptized this morning and praise the Lord? And people will raise their hand and they'll be like, come on down, right? We don't think that's right, but we also don't think that you've got to pass a 15-part inspection in order to be rolled off the assembly line, okay? We, we can have people who are still piecing it together and hope that the church, in its nourishment and discipline, will get those people home. So there's a kind of a fine balance there. Um, sorry, I had a lot to get through with Edwards today. I know I didn't ask any questions of folks. So my apologies for that. I like to have more interaction. But if you have questions, you can ask now. What year did this start? Uh, uh, 1762. I think that was the case. Might have been, might have been in the 17, early part of the 1770s. It was before the revolution happened. And he would have never considered himself anything but a British subject. So that, that sort of patriotic spirit that would have occurred um, after his death was never anything that affected him. He was a congregationalist, um, which means um, the churches back then were not separated church from state. The churches were actually funded by taxes that the state pulled in from other places. So city and state taxes would be turned around and then, then funded the churches with. He was a congregationalist, but he preferred at the end of his time Presbyterian rule. Um, and the reason why I think is because Presbyterian, uh, I, I mean, I'm just kind of throwing this out there, but he wouldn't have got fired if he was a Presbyterian. Like the congregation did that. Um, so... I think that he didn't like that idea of, of that rule. So, yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the end of the the end of yeah the end of the Newton quote. It is true that there are unsound convictions and impressions which are not abiding. But the Lord's laborers should weed with a gentle <clears throat> and cautious hand, lest in their attempts to pull up the tares they should pluck up the wheat also. So, yeah, I mean, we, we're not we we can't be haphazard about it. Like there, there's a gradation here, and we're never going to land in the spot. But the Puritans were so far on the other side. That, that there had to have been people. It, it's a strange thing to be a reformed person, to have people who are living lives of holiness, who rightly confess 
and are, are denied the Lord's Supper because they haven't had this sort of mystical experience. It's a very strange thing to me. Um, and again, to have their children baptized, they had to agree to affirm the councils of the church, to agree to all the doctrines. So they, they believed everything the church was saying. They just didn't have this sort of experience that, that they thought was enough, which is just insane to me. That's, on a social level, that's, that's way beyond the Roman Catholic era. Like, that's, that's horrible. Like, you, you can get justification right all day, every day, and you have made people, you've put people in a way worse position, a more dangerous position than what the Roman Catholic Church does, in my opinion. I think it's incredibly dangerous. So, yeah. I thought you were saying it was like their level of personal holiness or morality that they weren't reaching, and that's why they needed I think that there's... So for... I don't, it's hard to say. Like, they, yeah, there is a, a level of personal holiness and devotion to the Lord that they have, but I think that part of that is, is their own apprehension of those things, that they, they have to feel as though they've had this really strong experience that has led them to love the Lord more and forsake other things. So there are these, like, points of personal piety that they've got to they've have, but part of that apprehension is built in their own understanding of what's happened here. And so you, you have, I mean, Edwards goes through this in himself. He quite clearly believes in the gospel, but he, he doesn't feel like he's truly been converted yet. And, and so there's this, it's that pietistic response is sort of built into them. And, and how it happens, I mean, there's, there's a, what they want in order for people to be members of the church is a completeness in Christ. Now, they don't believe that people have actually reached completeness, but again, they need, I think that Newton, Newton's picture of a building is right. He, they, they need to be like everything but the windows cleaned is what they need to be by the time they join the church. So. Yes. Yeah. Not members. Not members. Not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. I mean, you you just know you know, but but they're every single person in that church is guarding it, right? If you got up, and even if Edwards, there's 1,100 people, he admitted 300 members that year in a town of 1,100 people when when the Spirit was poured out. That's too many for him to keep account. Well, he's Jonathan Edwards; he can probably keep account of them. Other people probably can't, but if Sue Bones comes up to take Lord's Supper and she has not been accounted as conversion, someone's going to know, someone's going to say, someone's going to go visiting her, and that would be a major offense. Like, that, that would be, that would not be, you would be taking the Lord's name in vain and, and that you would not be met with. I, I don't think she would, I don't think that they could get up there. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't think people would tackle her, but I don't know what they would do, but they, she wouldn't be able to get there, yeah. Right. Right. And and what they so if you were a Puritan, your answer to that would be, yeah, it is Christ alone, but we need to see evidence that it is that Christ has truly worked in you. So their their emphasis is is much more on the sovereign work of God in you 
than on your confessing, right? The conf- your, your aspect of faith is not enough. So faith, so what, what it basically becomes is faith, real abiding faith, is not enough for membership in the church. Which is, which is fine. I think the church is supposed to do that. The problem is that, that they were going far beyond what the scriptures seem to imply about people who are in the, I mean, read through 1 Corinthians and Paul's like, y'all are brothers and sisters in the Lord and you're saints. By the way, you're wretched people, right? Like, just wretched people, but Paul includes them in the church and he includes them as brothers and sisters. So I think the Puritans just went too, too far in that and keeping people from the Lord's Supper I don't think that we appreciate how big of a deal that was. The Lord's Supper was the deal. Like, that was the centerpiece of, of worship then. Um, that was what defined the church, quite obviously. Um, and to be defined as the church is to be defined as somebody who truly is a believer and isn't a believer. So in, in one sense, you, you do get that sense that they're, they're just relying too much on the divine working in them to, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bad situation. So... Um, yeah. Again, good theology. I think bad practice, bad polity, and it, it's just as devastating. So uh, we have a herd of cats back there, um, so I should pray, and we should allow those cats to come in. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for this day. Um, we're thankful for uh, all the kindness that you've shown to us, and certainly I'm thankful for Jonathan. We, we can talk about all the issues that um, that he has. No one group, no one person has ever met every single thing perfectly. Um, and while we can talk about how, how um, bad something that they did is, um, especially in Edward's life, we realize how much good there was in him. You worked mightily through him in those years. And um, he, he was a very godly man. He seemed very uh, concerned about your glory, concerned about the goodness of the church. These are all things that we ought to stand and applaud. As much as we, we have issues with the Puritans, there were things that they did really well. Um, let us remember both of those things and be good and judicious in how we handle the evidence that's placed before us. Um, I pray that we can be holy as they are holy, um, following their example and striving after it, even if we might approach things of the church and faith Uh, differently than them and learn from their mistakes. Um, Pray for our service. Pray for our time together. Be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.